From the Museum of Science in Boston, this is Pulsar, a podcast where experts answer questions from you, our audience. I'm your host, Eric O'Day. Thanks to Facebook Boston for supporting this episode of Pulsar. Some of the questions we've received have to do with designing our exhibits with accessibility in mind. This concept, called universal design, means creating something that can be utilized and enjoyed to the maximum extent by all, regardless of the user's abilities or disabilities. Today we are featuring a conversation between our Senior Vice President of Exhibits and Research, Dr. Christine Reach, and Boston College Professor Dr. Richard Jackson, who is a pioneer in the field of universal design learning. Well, hello, Richard. It is so wonderful to be present with you today. Thank you so much for joining us, the Museum of Science. Oh, I'm delighted to be here. Well, it's such a great occasion because Sunday, July 26, marks the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. Can you believe it's been 30 years? It's hard to believe. It's been a great 30 years. You've been so much a part of the change that has happened, particularly in education for students with disabilities during that 30 years. And I'm, I'm wondering if you could just talk to us about how you think education has changed during that time period. Uh, it's remarkable. 1990, the Americans with Disabilities Act was passed at the same time that the special ed law was renamed the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, what we call IDEA. And that act in 1990, coincident with the ADA, shifted focus away from working with kids with disabilities as though they were developmentally young, teaching them how to get ready for educational activities, to preparing them for community integration and for life skills and for functional skills, things that really matter. To that point, a part of the education provisions required schools to address the transitional needs of students with disabilities as they get ready to age out of special education at 22 or they graduate. They really needed to have skills that would support them in the community or support them to move on to post-secondary education or into the workforce. There was a major shift in thinking about what special education was about. And so when you think about the experiences of students with disabilities now as compared to 30 years ago, and as you're saying, in large part, not only to the ADA, but also IDEA, what feels different? I'll first respond on a personal level because I was born with very little vision, legally blind, and in later years, I also am hearing impaired. So I would be considered a deafblind adult, considered quite challenged in the traditional sense. But I have to say on a personal level, there's never been a better time in history to be a blind person. Life has just changed enormously. Just thinking about coming to the museum. If I were to go to a museum 30 years ago, I would have to have somebody talking in my ear about everything happening. I'd have to have somebody ask permission to put something in my hands, or I would have to bring exotic lens systems so that I could get up close to see things. Today, I can go to the museum's website and preview what I want to see. When I get to the museum, I can have a guided tour through technology. I can access labeling systems. I can encounter individuals at the museum that are sensitive to my particular needs. And that's just talking about the museum. 
the whole process of connecting to the world of knowledge out there has changed dramatically. Now, this is not to say that we're in a perfect state. Like right now in the pandemic, there are a lot of worries about how does a blind person function without using a sighted guide, without somebody assisting them through difficult environments or without hands-on kinds of experiences. I'm painting a picture of life today as it's quite positive for folks with disabilities, but we have to be mindful of some pretty grave challenges that people with disabilities are facing as we make our way through this pandemic. Well, it's certainly true. We have been modifying our exhibit halls to make them safer, minimize the risk of COVID transmission during this time period. And we had to think long and hard about what we kept and what we took away. And this is just kind of a microcosm of what you're talking about. We didn't want to take away our tactile experiences because they are so important for people who can't see. And so we decided to harden them up so that they're easier to clean and clean them more frequently as a way of keeping them out there and not denying access. But one of the big challenges we had was our audio labels are attached to each of our exhibit components and delivered audio through the phone. And of course, if you put a phone to your face, now that's at risk of a COVID transmission. The beautiful thing, as you're saying, is that technologies have advanced. And so we're moving to a smart phone-based system. So right now we'll have a service. People can access free of charge here at the Museum of Science where they can dial a sighted guide that can assist them. And then eventually we'll be putting all of our audio labels on an app that uses computer vision to provide location awareness. And then all of our audio will be there. So the technology is there to make it happen, but these moments definitely provide setbacks and we all have to remain committed and vigilant during this time. That's just a fabulous example of how technology has offered the flexibility that can come up with a quick solution like that. Without the dedicated systems in the museum, you can step back and say, well, that's it. We won't be able to have the access. But with the advancements in smartphone technology developed for blind people, that applies directly to the museum access. That's wonderful. Well, and Richard, I have to give you some compliments because what I've always thought of you as is tech savvy. I will never forget when we were working together, you had just one of the first examples of Bluetooth enabled hearing aids and you just jumped on. You have always been an early adapter of technology and I think I'm gaining a deeper understanding of why through this conversation. <laughs> what is it? Uh, necessity is the mother of invention. Growing up, going through school, so many things I had to sort of figure out on my own. I think that's why one of the real pluses today is how communities of people with disabilities are sharing their solutions and sharing their experiences. So one of the things that you are known for, and you were one of the authors of the first papers ever to come out for, is your knowledge and expertise of universal design for learning. And I'm wondering if you can share information with us about universal design for learning, what it is and how it works when it comes to a classroom environment. Learning really is a matter of differentiating useful items in the environment. It sounds very abstract, but just think of curb cuts for wheelchairs. So how does a wheelchair move through space? Well, it has to be able to roll. Well, stairways and curbs, the environment is loaded with barriers that prohibit wheelchair use. 
So if you think of, well, what are the potential affordances in the environment that could permit free and open access for wheelchair users? And curb cuts seems like today an obvious thing. The idea is that curb cuts turn out to be useful for people with uh, baby strollers or a cart when you go to the market or bicycles or rollerblades. Curb cuts are ubiquitous and just to everybody's advantage. And we could think of solutions in education as electronic curb cuts. Things like text-to-speech was invented many years ago for people that didn't have access to print. And now it turns out that when text can talk, there are many people that use it. I rely heavily on text-to-speech for my learning, but I have colleagues that are traveling or driving great distances, or they're exercising on a treadmill, and they're using the same technology I use for their own learning. The challenges to learning are in the environment and not really in the individual. So universal design for learning advances free design principles, multiple means of representation, what students learn should be available to them in many different modalities and how students learn. Students should be allowed to demonstrate what they know and can do in many different ways. Instead of saying a student has to write an essay, maybe a student could dictate an essay. Learning environments or classroom practices should have multiple opportunities for engagement. Kids that learn well on their own should be able to learn independently. Kids that work well through cooperative learning kids that learn through multimedia, kids that learn through action. Kids should have choice in how they engage in the learning process. Well, that's great. Do you have some favorite examples of what inclusion for students with disabilities can look like in its best format that kind of push you in thinking about, you know, we can do this. We can create the inclusive learning experiences that people with disabilities deserve and have a right to. Yes, I think that where universal design principles are implemented and where schools use activity centers, where they restructure their classroom practices so that everybody isn't doing the same thing at the same pace at the same time, we're still kind of stuck in this mold of schools as factories where kids are kind of raw material that have to be put in rooms based on their similarities. It turns out that there's no such thing of these similarities. Kids have common ages, but their interests and their preferences and their abilities are all over the place. Yet when they become adults, they must get along in society. So schools can provide the opportunity for kids to help each other and learn together Probably the best way to learn something is to teach it. And so when kids are helping each other, kids that may be ahead of other kids in one respect and not so much in another, they're learning from each other, interacting back and forth. Locally, a school right in our community, the William Henderson School in Dorchester, is a model inclusive practice school. The features in there are that every class is co-taught. So there are special education and general education teachers in the room at the same time. The therapies that are delivered in the school are not 
in pullout kind of situations where kids are brought in isolated settings to be treated medically. Instead, the therapies are delivered in the room. So the general education teachers see how to interact with students and also other kids see how to work with their peers that just happen to have disabilities. There's a network of schools across the country called SWIFT schools that are implementing these inclusive practices that include universal design for learning. That's so great. It's wonderful to hear those compelling examples that tell us we can do it. So as we look forward to the 40th anniversary of the ADA in 10 years, or the 50th anniversary of IDEA in 20 years, where would you like us to go as a society? And how can museums and schools think about working together to get toward a better future? I can see a future where schools are organized around working toward competencies that would include how to get along and well-being and how to be a caring citizen. And schools are organized around personalized approaches to learning using technology. And that schools are a microcosm of the broader community, so everybody belongs in schools. And then the transition from school to library to community center, to museums, it's all pretty seamless and it's all kind of linked together. That's kind of my vision for the future. It'll be as though people with disabilities are recognized for their strengths, uh, their contributions, and not their deficits and their limitations. Oh, it's so wonderful to hear all of this. And your vision, schools as a place where everyone belongs right? Where people can kind of find their interests and keep building their competencies. What's amazing for me is that's also what museums strive for. We talk a lot about wanting to make science learning something for everyone here at Museum of Science. And it's a beautiful thing to start thinking about breaking down these boundaries. And if we did all do that within the education sector together, what type of world we'd create? It's really powerful. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Richard, for joining us today. It has been inspiring, as always, to hear your visions for the future and hear about all the hard work you've done to advance education. And so thank you for speaking with me today and for all of your great work. Well, thank you for having me. It was an absolute delight. If you'd like to have one of your questions answered by a visiting expert or a Museum of Science educator, you can email them to sciencequestions at mos.org. If you enjoyed this episode of Pulsar, don't forget to subscribe on the Apple Podcasts app or on Spotify, as well as leaving a rating or review for us. That's it for this episode of Pulsar. Join us again soon.